0: Welcome to Redeemer Kingsville Sermon Series, taken from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Kingsville, Maryland. Listen here, at the beginning of these verses, that Jesus becomes aware that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing, not himself, but with his authority through his disciples more disciples than John was doing. And notice his response to this. He abandons, literally he abandoned Judea and once again set off for Galilee. There's a few things that's going on here. At first, you would think that if news of this came to Jesus, who is the greater? Jesus or John the Baptist? Kids, who is the greater? Joy. Jesus is the greater. And there's some type of conflict that has arisen. Already, John the Baptist, his disciples, are a bit confused about the relationship between Jesus' baptizing and John's baptizing. We saw that caused a little bit of tension in John's own camp, to which John responded with humility and grace, acknowledging that he must diminish his role as the one who prepares the way for Jesus is being and has mostly been accomplished. Jesus' ministry has begun the greater has taken up his call, his vocation, his responsibility from his true Heavenly Father and is now executing it in the realm of Judea. So you would think knowing that, knowing what we talked about last week, that when news comes that the Pharisees, another group, could potentially be seeking to sow discord between John and between Jesus or perhaps to take advantage of that possible misunderstanding that was exemplified last week in John's own discussion, you would think that Jesus might appeal to his authority. He might appeal to his greatness. He might appeal to the fact that as John has introduced him in our gospel, he is the very word incarnate, come from heaven. And he would then call John to rescind. John to go elsewhere so that he could continue his ministry where he wants, where he wills, where he feels the Spirit leading him. But notice what he does. He leaves. That just strikes me as so humble and so gracious that rather than be a source or cause discord between these two ministries, rather, rather than exert his authority over the one who has come to prepare his way, Jesus leaves. And notice, as he does so, so, there is a hint of a rebuke in it. The Greek term, he abandoned Judea, is most normally used for dismissing, abandoning somebody morally, relationally. So you would often use that language. You would say, somebody has dismissed, they've not followed your advice. So you dismiss them to go on about their way into folly or plenty, depending if they follow your advice. Or better yet, when somebody is not simply dismissive, but is contrary to you, antagonistic towards you, you rebuff them, you reprove them. This is the language that is used of Jesus here. He abandons Judea. In other words, he is saying, I have had my ministry. It's the ministry that the synoptic gospels do not record. They begin with his Galilean ministry. But John shows that Jesus was actually active in Judea. And he was actively not received. Actively confronted. Actively opposed. Not by all, but by those who were the religious leaders of the time. They did not accept Jesus. So rather than give them a foothold to cause discord, In his ministry, and his relationship with John, Jesus abandons them. In some ways, we will see later that Jesus will describe to his disciples that when they come to a town that rejects their message of Jesus as Lord and Messiah, they are to leave this town, and what are they to do? Anybody remember? What do they do? After they've given the gospel message, and that town, that place, has rejected it, they are to leave and to perform an important sign act. Remember what it is? Shake the dust off your sandals. You're used to shake the dust off your sandals. Now, I know somebody who for many years would use that language and say, hey, don't worry about it. You know, like he used that expression, shake the dust off your sandals, that if somebody does you wrong, you're having a bad day, just shake the dust off your sandals and don't worry, right? Leave it behind you. That's not what it means, right? What it means is that you don't want one speck of that village or it's dust on you because when judgment comes you don't want to be anywhere near it right? and in a real way what Jesus is doing is by abandoning Judea he's giving a judgment he's saying that you have rejected as an institution as a people in general your representative your religious leaders and those who follow them have rejected my ministry and he won't take it up again for a while yet So he proceeds to Galilee. And on his way he has to travel through Samaria. Now some commentators that you might read. Will say that Jews were at such opposition. And such distaste toward the Samaritans. That normally they would head east across the Jordan River. Travel north through Gentile territory. And then cross west across the Jordan again. Back if they were traveling to the Galilee region. Well. I don't think this notion is correct. I think we have ancient uh, commentators and other proof that shows that such was the ease of that route from Galilee to Jerusalem three days that Jews were willing to risk it, right? They were willing to come into contact with Samaritans who we will see they did not have a good relationship with to avoid prolonging that journey or even traveling through Gentile territory. They would head north. And it was about a three-day journey from Jerusalem to where Jesus was heading. So he comes into the vicinity of a town of Sechar. It's near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Remember, Joseph approaches his father, Jacob, who is nearing his death. And Jacob bequeaths this field to him. He bequeaths literally the, the, the rim, the shoulder of this mountain that we're referring to here. As a matter of fact, you can actually go and see the well that the text describes that Jesus plopped. As much as we can know these things, as much as we can identify these, this well has actually come down through Christian tradition to still be extant. You can go and visit it. I believe it's actually a Greek Orthodox church owns the rights to the well. And so I think it's covered and there are various vestments and the like set up there so you could actually see it and you could see what we think to be the village of Sikar in the vicinity here as well as what we think might be Joseph's burial place. All these landmarks, are still there. Jesus plops down. He is exhausted from this journey. He is tired, as he is going to be. He is human. Remember, he is the Word incarnate. All of the difficulties, all of the challenges, all of the weaknesses that you and I experience as human beings, Jesus was also susceptible to. And in his exhaustion, it's noon, it's hot. It's dry. It's dusty. It's an arid land. He plops down. And lo and behold, a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. Now, this is unusual. Not that women would come to draw water. This was a normal exercise. If you had a well, remember, this was not a place. There were springs, actually, in the vicinity. But if you weren't so close to them, you would need water for your daily tasks, for your daily refreshment. You would have to get it from a well. Normally, The women would congregate as they were responsible for their families and their households, a wide range of duties, one of which was providing water for the family. Normally you would make two trips. Either you would do it, normally you would do it in the morning and the evening, in the cool of the day. When it wasn't so hot, it wasn't so arid, and you could do it as a social gathering as well. When some of your other responsibilities of the day didn't call you away to your family or to your husband, you could congregate with your friends, gather together and go and draw water together and have a time both for practical reasons as well as social reasons. But it is noon. It is the middle of the day. It is hot. It is unusual that this woman is coming by herself to the well. That alone gives us some indication that she was a social outcast. We don't exactly know why at this point, but Jesus asks her to give him a drink. He would like a drink. Why, he asked her, we don't know for sure. His disciples had gone off. Perhaps they had taken the supplies that you might carry in order to use wells like this, and Jesus had none. But regardless, he asked this question of her. And she responds in this way. How is it that although you are a Jew, you are asking for a drink from me when I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. You see, the request that Jesus gives is quite striking. First and foremost, this woman is a Samaritan. Do we remember the history of how the Samaritan people came to be? Samaria was the great ancient capital of the kingdom of Israel in the north. And as a part of God's judgment, he sent the Assyrian nation to come and to destroy it. To destroy that nation, to take its people, notably its aristocracy, the upper crust, and then the middle class, to take all those who were comfortable and prosperous and might have had some role in sowing dissension against a foreign empire that were trying to be overlords of this area in Canaan. This country, this empire had come, and they had destroyed the capital of Samaria. They had demolished the monarchy that ruled there that had been in tumult for generations, and they had taken its people and they had exiled All they left was peasants and farmers. They just left people to be able to work the land. And it was good land. It was prosperous land. This was a land that was known to produce fine wine as well as olive oil. This is one of the great things that come from the ancient world down to us archaeologically. We see all the time these pots and these letters that are constantly being exchanged in this region Speaking about the fine olive oil, speaking about the production of various agricultural goods in this area, it was a prosperous region. It was actually particularly good for olive oil, for wine, and even for food. So the Assyrians left the farmers. They didn't want that to go to waste. So they left the peasant class to be able to work it. And in its place, they brought in other peoples from different parts of the world, from different parts of their empires that they had conquered, They brought in other peoples and they dropped them in Samaria so that this people would lose their social identity. So that the Israelites in the north would not be true Israelites. They would not have true worship of their God. All those things that united them, that made them whole, that gave them a social identity was attempted to be eradicated by bringing other people groups in there, to intermarry, intermingle, and to set up some type of system of allegiance to the empire that had relocated them. And this, in fact, is what happened. Those who were left over intermarried with these people groups. And they began, actually, to worship false gods. They took the gods from these people that were coming from various parts of the world, And they worship those gods. And I don't think anybody, does anybody remember what God did in response to this? I think it's from uh, 2 Kings chapter 17. What God did? He sent lions. Did you remember that? He sent lions. And lions went out through that territory and they began decimating it to where the people had to plead with the emperor in Assyria to bring in somebody from the south who knew how to worship God so that they might worship God faithfully. And so they did. They brought in a priest who taught them how to worship God. So they added that to their worship. They didn't do away with the worship of other gods. But they added that to their worship and to their traditions. And that type of tradition continued to follow on down through the centuries. We're talking about roughly 700 B.C. at this time. So for seven to 800 years, this people have worshipped differently from the Jews in the South. And not only have they worshipped differently, but they have actually adopted a different text. They do not acknowledge the fullness and the breadth of the Old Testament as inspired scripture. Instead, they only recognize the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and they have their own version of it. You can read it today. If you can read Samaritan, it's Samaritan Pentateuch. And in it, there are certain particular changes. We'll get to that in a second. Certain particular changes. And one of them is that God calls his people to worship, not at that place that he will show them, which later scripture reveals to be Mount Zion, the city that David had conquered, but instead to worship at Mount Gerizim. That is the place where the Samaritans worshipped. That is the place where they took their syncretistic form of worship, worshipping both God, the God of the Bible, and other gods. That is the mount to which they went to worship. And that is the reason why Jews have no relationship with them. There's a long history of that. We don't have time to recount it all. But needless to say, this form of false worship, in addition to this form of limited inspiration of Scripture, caused the Jews to find this people to be unclean and offensive to themselves. Only exacerbated by the fact that they had similar roots together. So, when the woman asks him why Jesus would ask for a drink, it's a loaded question. She's saying to him, "Don't, don't you know that if you use my instruments, if you use my vessels, you risk becoming unclean? You risk being defiled? You risk, in other words, being put out of your community of worshipers for a time. You risk becoming unclean and unacceptable to God And that's not even factoring into the fact that she was a woman. And Samaritan women were considered very poorly by the Jews. Even worse than their men. So she's got a lot of things going against her. And she hits at the heart to Jesus. What is this request that you have that would come at such spiritual and cultic risk to yourself? And Jesus answers. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see, Jesus is striking at the heart. This water that he's saying, this water that Jesus can bring, that can make all things pure, that can overcome all defilement, that can overcome all separation. This is what Jesus is offering, but the woman can only hear this word living water. You see, she's using a well. It's noon. It's hot. What's on her mind is only the fleshly. It's only the worldly. But as Jesus is wont to do in these conversations, either with Nicodemus or with this woman or with people to come, Jesus is taking this conversation to a different level. He's not focusing only on the earthly. He's focusing on the heavenly, and this woman won't be able to see it. She says, Lord, you have nothing with which to draw water, and the well is deep. From where, then, will you get this living water? In other words, I'm using a well that is fed from an underground spring. The type of water you're talking about is live, fresh spring water, the most valuable water that you can find. There's nothing other around here. Where are you going to get this? Where's your bucket and your rope? Where's your truncheon and your shovel to be able to find this water, to give it to me? Is it better? Are you greater than our forefather Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Tradition actually had erupted around Jacob and this well, that it came about miraculously. But needless to say, even if we don't acknowledge that, even if that's not what she's referring to, this well had been around for almost 2,000 years. It is an extremely reliable and dependent source of water, which is a source of life to this village. How can Jesus possibly be better than Jacob in discerning this? You see, nowadays, we oftentimes, in our culture, look back at ancient things and see them as antiquated, ignorant, out of date, having no real context or touch with us today, right? There's a a modern-day superiority with things that have come before us. But the opposite was true at this time. Things that were ancient were actually things that were more valuable. Jacob himself wrestled with God. He spoke with the living God. God revealed to him this source of water and life. How could the one who is plopped down next to this well, tired and exhausted and asking a Samaritan woman, how could that one possibly have anything better to offer? So Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks some of this water will be thirsty. But whoever takes one sip, it's literally that juxtaposition, it's such contrast here, but whoever takes one sip of the water that I will give him will never ever become thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water bubbling up to eternal life. So the woman said, Lord, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty And so then I may not need to keep coming all the way here to draw water again and again. You see what Jesus is saying is that it is his right. It is his prerogative. It is his authority to decide what is clean and unclean. His authority, his right, his prerogative to take dry and dusty hearts and to change them from that sin, from that death, from that lifelessness and instead to make them live and fleshy and whole and prosperous, bubbling up with eternal life. You see, the life that Jesus gives is not just for a time. It is a fullness that Jacob only longed for, only in faith, looked for God to answer, could only dream of. And now it is here before this woman, the one who has the ability and who has the right to cause Samaritans or Gentiles or Jews and everything in between and to change their hearts. To give them a taste of himself, of the grace which comes comes with the incarnate word, which will last forever. As we prepared to receive the Lord's Supper this morning, Jesus will call us to consider another type of tasting. The thirst is the same. The hunger is the same. We have need as we enter before him in this table. We have need of the union that is symbolized in the elements of bread and water and wine as we feed upon them. But notice here that rather than water, we see another illusion, another symbolism given. The symbolism of wine, which is his blood. Next week, we'll talk more about Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. But for now, as we come to the table, we should realize that our need is the very same as this woman. We, as we will see, have access to knowing Jesus in a way that she didn't through the fullness of the breath of the word of God. Nonetheless, our need is the same. And Jesus makes that same offer. Will you taste of me? Will you come thirsty and parched and hungry knowing that that can only be satisfied By the one who can cause springs of living water to well up in you. The one who can satiate that thirst. Who can satisfy your hunger. Who can take you from dry and dusty, desiccated and thirsty. And can instead give you a fullness, satisfaction that will never end. This has been a message from Justin Estrada, senior pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, a congregation of the PCA located in the heart of Kingsville, Maryland.